Hey, Cole, are you ready this week to be blasted away by mediocrity? Well, if modern society has taught me anything, it's how to handle that. Well, get ready, because this week I'm going to talk about one of the most ho-hum experiences of my life since my college boyfriend. Ooh, yikes. Because I'm talking about the 1980 film by John Carpenter, The Fog. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And this week, I'm talking about a film that I had not seen before. And it may have changed my opinion on John Carpenter. I'm not going to lie. Yikes. Because... Wait, who's John Carpenter? Deep breaths. John Carpenter is um, a horror legend responsible for making the movie Halloween. Oh, awesome. Among other things. <laughs> I've seen it at least. Okay. It's, I mean. This podcast is canceled. Everyone just hit stop. <laughs> Everyone go home. Just turn the car around. <laughs> oh, my God. He did it with Deborah Hill. They made Halloween together. They're also, well, they're also technically responsible for Halloween 3 season of the witch, but whatever. Okay. See? See? They're, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were like a horror power couple. They were dating back then. They are not now. And they, I think, broke up not that long after this movie. Well, because John Carpenter ended up marrying one of the people in this movie. Oh, boy. Now, I don't know if that's how they met. I don't know. This isn't a love story. This that's is, very this Mr. Horror, and Mrs. Smith. This is a horror podcast. John, essentially... One of the main heroines in this movie is played by Adrienne Barbeau. I love her. She's amazing. She was in HBO's Carnival more recently, I guess, than, and then a bunch of other movies. But she and John Carpenter were married, I think, at the time of this movie. They divorced in 84, so they divorced four years after this. Okay. So, to be honest, I don't know when they got married, but I feel like in my notes, it says that Carpenter and Hill wrote this and were dating at the time when they wrote it. So, I feel like that must have been a real short marriage. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, short marriages happen. Hopefully yeah. ours won't be, but you know. Well, I mean, it's only our first one, so. Again, my niece does insist on calling my wedding my first wedding, so. Yeah, but enough about that. I don't care about any of that personal life stuff, but John Carpenter is great. Him and Deborah Hill wrote this movie together. She produced it. He directed it. <sighs> the synopsis is as follows. I did not write this. This is the actual synopsis. The fog tells a story of a strange glowing fog that sweeps over a small coastal town in California, bringing with it the vengeful ghosts of mariners who were killed in a shipwreck there 100 years before. And at first, you know me, I'm thinking, I love a story that involves semen. I should have seen that coming. (laughs) That's what she said. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm on a roll today. Lord. But this movie was not very good, in my opinion. Some people like it. Anyways, Carpenter said that the film was inspired by the 1958 British film The Crawling Eyes, as well as a trip to Stonehenge that he went to. And I guess when he saw it, the monument was covered in fog. So he was like, I'm going to write a really bad movie about this. (laughs) God. And so 
I say I don't like this. I really didn't like this, which is weird because the cast is amazing. The other heroine in it is Jamie Lee Curtis, oh. obviously from Halloween. Yeah. So, and this was two years post Halloween. So like they all, and actually as I was reading a lot of like information about these movies, I think that was very common back then. It's like directors and stuff would find like actresses that they just like to work with and they would, they would use a lot of the similar cast. I think now maybe the process, I think that happens, but the process is a little bit more going through like agents and like contracts and stuff like that. Yeah. But in my defense of not liking this movie, I did read that after watching a rough cut of the film, Carpenter was dissatisfied with the results, commenting on the experience by saying, quote, it was terrible. I had a movie that just didn't work. I knew it in my heart. He then added a prologue and some extra scenes to try to make the film more comprehensible, frightening, and gorier. And at this point, approximately one-third of the movie is new scenes and reshoots. Jesus. So he basically was like, this is a train wreck. Let me just pile shit on top of it to try to fix it. But that never works out. It's kind of like when a room smells really bad, so you just use some air freshener instead of figuring out the cause. Or Febreze. Or, or you light a scented candle. You know, just like I send a candle. But yeah, I mean, you can't just keep adding stuff and expecting it to be fixed. And it's weird because I do, I can only imagine some of the scenes in it that he added because there are some scenes that are like blatantly gorier than the rest of the movie. I think he was going for a little bit of that sort of character developed creeping horror that Halloween did because it was so successful, obviously, but it's not achieved in this. He spends a lot of time going like through the lives of some of these people in this town and sort of showing this town but it's like boring they're not interesting people gross and like for instance like there's this character of kathy williams she is played by the magnificent janet lee who is the girl who gets killed in the shower in psycho oh awesome so i and she was a little bit older in this film she was still fine in the role but that role is like inconsequential to the plot And so, but she's in a couple scenes, I think, because they realized they had this, like, great sort of, like, scream queen, so they wanted to use her. But the part is stupid. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And so sometimes you're, like, just wanting to get through these scenes. Like, she's just a lady in a town, kind of. I don't know. I had a rough time with this one. It did not keep my interest. And when I first started it, I thought it was going to be good. And then very quickly realized that I was not going to like it. And so then I, and then realized I had an hour more to sit through of me knowing I wasn't liking this movie. Gross. Anyway, they also did a remake of it in 2005 that was produced by Carpenter and Hill as well. And that was very negatively reviewed. I feel like I remember the remake. I feel like I remember something called The Fog. Possibly. I mean, the concept of it is not. I don't know. It doesn't seem that original to me. It's like haunted sailors. I mean, I literally just read a Clive Barker short story this morning that is a very similar concept. Yeah. So anyways, okay. It got mixed reviews upon release at the box office, but my guess, so it ended up making 21 million domestically. The budget was only 1.1 million. Although I think I did read that they spent almost double the budget on advertising for it. And in some theaters even set up like fog machines and stuff. Obviously, I was not alive when this came out. But the wait, tw- when did this come out? 1980. Oh, okay. But the budget to making money seems like it was successful. But I have a feeling that people probably at that time were just so like riding the sort of horror train, saw John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, and were like, yeah, let's jump on this one. And then they realized they're on the boring card. Yes. 
since release, it's been given more positive, like retrospective reviews, and some have viewed it as a cult classic. I do not really know why. And I will say, I have obviously a lot of friends that are super into horror, and I have never heard somebody talk about how much they love this movie. So I don't know. It makes no sense to me, but I think that that's about everything I have to say about it. So I'm just going to tell you kind of about the plot and what happens, and then I can talk about why it's dumb even more, a little bit. So ends up opening up with an old man telling a ghost story to some kids around a campfire on a beach. And he starts with a quote by Edgar Allan Poe's A Dream Within a Dream. So it's like, okay, it's kind of like creepy and whatever. Is he wearing a white cable knit cardigan? Because that's what I'm picturing in my head. (laughs) No, he's wearing a jacket, and then he's wearing, like, one of those, like, old man sailor hat things. Okay. So the story is about, the story that he tells is about a shipwreck that happens in a thick fog because these, like, sailors see a campfire on the beach, and so they're going to try to dock, and so they're trying to get to the campfire, but they end up shipwrecking and dying. Okay, that's it. That's fine. Docking isn't all it's cracked up to be. I don't think people are going to know it's what that docking is please cut it actually now that i think about it because that's just gonna lead people to try and google it and <laughs> no one <sighs> if you're listening at home and want to know cole's reference google docking don't and then get back to us don't google it <laughs> i did <laughs> i did explain to so many of my friends what docking was at one point because like there's this whole vernacular of gay people that straight people just are unaware of anyway Next up, mm. next up, we meet this character of a priest, and he's, I don't know, this, I actually, my notes for this are more thorough than I actually want to be, so I'm, like, going to try to skim a little bit, but essentially, the priest is in his little church area, and miraculously, this brick falls from the wall, and the hidden compartment is revealed, and there's, like, a, an old journal in it. I should also note... That this is, the town is celebrating its 100th anniversary of being established, which apparently was the same day that the shipwreck happened. This makes no sense when you think about it, because, like, why would there be a campfire on the beach if there were no town there to begin with? And then, like, who set up the town if the sailors sailing were just, like, all killed? But, so really what it is, is it's the 100th anniversary of those sailors dying, but they're going to say it's the town being established because plot holes and all that. There is no logic in this place. Yes. I mean, that really makes no sense. And that's part of the problem with this is some of the shit that happens in here doesn't make any sense, including the entire basis of the plot, which is that this is the 100th anniversary. That's why these sailors are going to come back and kill people. So anyways. Oh, there's also this boat that's like at sea and they see the fog like rolling in because it rolls in at midnight on the anniversary. And then there's two guys on it. They end up getting killed. I was going to talk about it more. It's not that interesting. They get stabbed. But then when they find their bodies, it's like they think they've been drowned at the bottom of the sea for months. And it's like, okay, whatever. Uh, eh. So anyways, back to more interesting stuff. We meet the character of Nick, who is driving by and he passes a hitchhiker, Elizabeth, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And he stops for her. Side note, do not stop for hitchhikers, even if they're cute or Jamie Lee Curtis. Do not pick them up. She gets in and is like, Hey, are you a weirdo? Which is like, but at that point, he's she's already like shut the door and they're driving. So what are you going to do, girl? Yikes. Yeah. And he's like, that. so he, he answers. He's like, yeah, I am. But he's kind of like, not, he's like 80s cute. He's not like 2020 cute or 2021 cute. He's like 80s cute. 
Mm. And so, like, he's, like, flirting with her and stuff like that, but he does say no. So, at that point, like, if he decides to kill her, that's probably her fault. But anyways, that doesn't happen. Actually, weirdly enough, <laughs> I'm going to talk about it in a second. So, the, all the windows of the car shatter for no fucking reason. It, they never explain it. There's no fucking sailors. They just shatter, and then that, that's the end of that scene. <laughs> In or out? Um... For some odd reason, it's important. I think they to just me. explode. I think they go out. Maybe no. Maybe they go in. I don't remember. I don't. It does. I mean, I don't remember, and I don't know what caused it. So whatever. So okay. So then we see the kind of like narrator slash second heroine is Stevie Wayne. Like I said, played by Adrian Barbeau. She is great. I don't want to talk too much about her because I know I'm already going to be struggling with time on this. But I'll just mention her. Because she kind of narrates it, and she's one of the best parts in it. She does this kind of, like, sultry voice. Like, I should have written down this line, but I wasn't going to say it. But, like, at one point, like, she's, like, the town radio, right? And at one point, she's, like, and if you keep me turned on all night, I'll try to do the same for you. Like, it's funny. It's I like her a lot. So that reminds me, in, like, the early 2000s, there was a Cadillac commercial where this, like, gorgeous woman gets in a Cadillac and she's in like high heels and a slinky dress. And she's like, and you should ask yourself when you turn your car on, does it return the favor? Some people really are so in love with their cars. Well, and see, the thing is for a long time, I was like, girl, it's just a Cadillac. But then I had a Cadillac as a rental (laughs) one time when I was having my car repaired and I was like, okay, I get it. Well, here people just like those big monster truck monstrosities in new Orleans. I know. The city of narrow streets. Anyway. Okay, so shortly after that, you remember the characters of Nick and Elizabeth that we saw literally five seconds ago? Well, it cuts back to them, and they're naked in bed together. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And so from this point on, Nick and Elizabeth are like a couple. Like, they go everywhere together. Like, Elizabeth was hitchhiking somewhere, but apparently that just completely goes out the window, and she decides to just, like... Settle down in this shitty coastal town with Nick because he was, like, charming to her when she was hitchhiking. What? Are they lesbians? <laughs> Seriously. So, anyways, all, but what I did respect was Nick. It's, like, the next morning and they're in bed or something. And Nick asks her her name at that point. And I can relate with to that. Although not necessarily waking up with somebody. But, like, you know, the next day texting who this. What was your name again? <laughs> yeah. Grinder butthole number three. Ew. Butthole number three. So <laughs> be a great the name for your perfume or something. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. So the, we learned that the radio DJ Stevie, she has a kid and the kid is, was one of the kids listening to ghost stories at the beginning. He comes up and he's talking about how he found this piece of driftwood on the beach. And then the only reason I'm even talking about this scene is because he goes, Mom, can I have a stomach pounder and a Coke? And so this kid is like 10 years old. And I'm thinking, this cannot be what my gay ass thinks it is. Oh, my Lord. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time you asked for a stomach pounder. (sighs) (laughs) So I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? Right. Um, And maybe people listening to this know this. So I Googled it. And apparently a stomach pounder was slang in the late 70s slash early 80s for Pop Rocks and Coke. Uh, no. I mean, I'm okay with Pop Rocks. 
So am I. But didn't he say he was hungry? Well, he says, can I have a stomach pounder and a Coke? Okay. Well, also, if Coke is part of a stomach pounder, like, sir, do you want, like, two Cokes? No, I looked it up on Urban Dictionary. That's apparently how you say it. A stomach pounder and Coke. Oh, gross. Maybe you have to say stomach pounder, like, with a type of soda. This is me just guessing. Like, maybe you could be like, I want a stomach pounder and Dr. Pepper. No. See, I was expecting it to be this, like, very large sandwich. I'm I was also really expecting hungry. it to be a dick. He's 10. Yeah, that was the first clue that it probably wasn't that. <laughs> I also haven't had my afternoon snack yet. So that probably <laughs> explains why oh I'm like, I would like a sandwich. God, we started without you eating your first snack. That's a recipe for disaster. So anyways, fast forward to a lot of stuff. The priest is looking over that journal that he found. And in it... It's talking about this, like, leprosy colony. It's, like, real out of left field because I don't know. It's never mentioned before. Which, by the way, side note, informative. We're going to, like, informativeness to people right now. Leprosy is not, one, not actually that contagious in modern times. Leprosy in modern times is different than leprosy, leprosy in, like, old-timey biblical times. It was more contagious back then. Now it is not, and it is treated with uh, antibiotics and quite curable. Also... Common misconception, leprosy, your digits do not fall off. Usually you get bumps and stuff, but what happens is the bacteria that causes leprosy attacks your nerves, which makes all of your digits and stuff become numb. So burns and cuts and stuff can go unnoticed, which leads to infection and permanent damage. And then your body can eventually reabsorb the digits or they fall off because of that damage, not because of the disease. Reabsorb? That's what it said. Like it just sucks your finger in? I guess so. That is more interesting than this entire movie so far. I know. It's kind of fascinating. I actually did know that leprosy doesn't make your limbs fall off, that that's sort of this, like, myth. It's because the perception is that, you know, people would be missing fingers. But it's not because of leprosy. It's because they get infections from not realizing that they have a cut on their hand. Yeah. So, anyways, be nice to lepers. That's the moral of this story. And don't call them lepers. (laughs) What do you call them? People struggling with leprosy? Yes. Uh. People living with leprosy. That's like, for some reason in my head, I was like, can I not say lemur either? Do I have to say people, do I have to say animals living with lemurcy? That's right. I'm making jokes here. Oh, you're lucky you're handsome. All day, every day. Okay, so then the journal gets off of the leprosy topic and starts talking about how the priest was an accomplice to murder. What kind of murder do you say? Well, in the journal, the priest basically talks about how he and five other people conspired to murder these sailors because they were smuggling gold doubloons from Spain or something like that. And this was, one, surprising because it didn't wasn't really, like, mentioned at all in any of the other stories or up until now. But also not surprising because it is, well, it's not like murder is a new hobby for the church. So, oh, yikes. That's that. And essentially, it talks about how, like, the big fog helped them hide their deed. and But it doesn't make sense because the sh- they, I, I think, like, they set up the campfire knowing that the ship would, like, hit a rock or something like that and that the fog helped them. But also, it's not like they could, like, create the fog. Also, there wasn't a town yet. I hate this movie so much. Yeah. I'm so annoyed. Because, like, what if there wasn't a fog that day? Like, you're not Storm from the X-Men. You can't just make fog out of nothing. I hate this movie. All right. So slightly more spooky stuff. They're doing the autopsy on one of the guys murdered on the boat. His body looks like it's been at the bottom of the ocean. 
They go out of the room and leave Jamie Lee Curtis, who is now like literally attached to Nick forever because he's cute and he picked her up hitchhiking. So why wouldn't she just always be with him now? Maybe they- he has like bomb ass dick. I mean, that would explain a lot. But oh, Nick is actually also the doctor from Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And you do see his butt and it does look decent, but you don't see his dick. So who knows? Many people look better from the back, you know? Oh, boy. All right. We're talking a lot about dicks. Okay. So they go out in the hall to discuss it because obviously, like, it's a delicate topic. They cannot discuss it in front of a lady. So they leave the lady in the room with the dead body, which promptly reanimates and, like, shambles over to Jamie Lee Curtis. And then she turns around and screams. Then the body falls on the ground. And they rush in. And the body had scribbled three on the floor. What's happening that is not really explained in the movie or whatever is the sailors are coming back to kill six people because there were six conspirators. That boatman was the third person apparently killed, even though I'm pretty sure he was the second. He scribbles three on the ground, but they do not explain this in the movie at all. I didn't realize it until sort of at the end when they start talking about how there needs to be a sixth person to be killed. Anyways, I so, hate this. Keep going. Yeah, I'm gonna fast forward way through this movie, and the fog. Is, so now the fog is like completely rolling in. Oh, here's the other weird thing about it: is this movie takes place largely like during the day because at midnight the fog comes in. They kill some people. Then it's daytime. But the sailors only show up when there's like this like heavy fog. But then, where are they during the day? Like I don't know. It it just doesn't make any sense. Like. If they're like, I mean, because they're corporeal, right? They're not spirits. They evaporate into the fog when it disperses. But I think the fog is supposed to always be there. Oh, also the fog glows and the people don't think it's weird for a while, for a bit. That, I hate this so much. Okay. Anyways, so basically stevie's in the radio tower and she tells everybody that everyone should get into the church to hide from the fog because obviously there's something wrong with this fog so then they're reading the journal they ultimate this is like very much so kind of towards the end of this movie i've skipped most of it for your benefit so they all figure out that they need to kill six people somehow i don't know how they did that but they did even though there's nothing to suggest that but there are six conspirators so they've already killed five at this point. And so then at this point in my head, I'm thinking, we'll just throw them one more person. Like, there's a couple old people there. Like, yeah, no, just find somebody. Yes. So instead, they read this cryptic passage that's like something about blah, blah, blah. The gold is somewhere in the church, very obviously. It's like supposed to be cryptic, but it's not. So then they start tearing down like one of these like brick walls. And lo and behold, they find this giant golden cross that was made out of the melted down doubloons. It looks like brass to me, but they think it's gold. So the priest gives it back to the leader of the sailor zombies. And then like they like glow for a second and then they disappear. And we're like, oh, the town is safe. Or is it? Because then it goes back. Everyone leaves the church and is like, oh, we're happy. And like, we're going to pretend none of this happened, even though five people died. And then it flashes back to the church. And the priest, who is the descendant of the priest, the actual conspirator, that uh, priests aren't supposed to have kids. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. 
Well, that's because you didn't have someone break up with you in order to go to seminary. (laughs) True. I'm trying to think. Well, I guess maybe you could have a kid before you became a priest. Yeah. Theoretically. Yeah. (laughs) Not that I'm thinking about that. Because I think it's supposed to be like his great-great-grandfather or something like that. But it's like... I don't I don't that's just another dumb thing. Anyways, it flashes back to him and the spectral sailor guy is back and he has a saber and he slashes through the priest and then it cuts to the credits and that's how the movie ends. So they did kill them. So giving back the gold didn't work. I guess. I hate it. I'm sorry. So, anyways, that's literally the whole movie. So, what are my thoughts on this movie? Well, it's kind of slow moving. I mean, I skipped a lot of this movie. I'm not going to lie. Like, I didn't really talk about that many of the death scenes because most of the death scenes were literally like somebody saw a door, then a bunch of fog appeared, and then then sailors knocked, and then the people went, opened their doors, even though there's like all this like fucking mysterious fog coming out from under it. That glows. <laughs> that glows. And then they would usually just get like stabbed or like, I don't know. That was basically it. Poked in. Some guy got poked in the eyeballs with the poker. I was about to say, if I heard a knock on the door and there was glowing fog coming in from underneath it, I definitely wouldn't answer it. But also, let's be real, I don't answer the door. (laughs) Yeah. I peek around the corner and then I hide while you go and answer it. Yeah. I still remember when um, Kimberly and Lara from The Dark Roast were here and staying in our guest room and we... And I was in there with them up at the front of the house and we ordered pizza and it got here and the doorbell rang and the three of us just froze and we waited for you to go and get it. Oh yeah. I'm the one person who doesn't mind interacting with other members of the human race, I guess. I, this is what happens when you, an extrovert, marries an introvert with primarily only introvert friends. (laughs) Um, okay let me just do my couple like I'm just gonna say two more things well I don't know how many more things as many as I feel like I guess so my issues with this movie what I didn't like it's kind of slow moving obviously it's this the pacing of it is really off like I did not know about the re-edits and the added scenes until later but that makes perfect sense to me because it seems like there's a weird issue of pacing and like when things are happening and how could they be happening and sometimes it's even like, is it supposed to be night now or is it day now? Because this looks nighttime, but maybe, it, but I feel like it was just daytime, like that kind of bullshit. And I don't know. There's just something wrong about it. It felt, I don't know. I was very disappointed, especially for a John Carpenter movie. I will say the music was okay. Sometimes it was actually downright good. I actually had notes that wrote that it was good, but then went back and changed it and said, never mind, that was short-lived because they stopped using good music at some point. Uh, maybe they didn't have as good music for the the added scenes or the other way around. Oh, yeah. I mean, that could be. I don't know. It was just... And then, of course, the plot is a complete dumpster fire. Like, they just don't explain enough. So, anyways, all in all, I would say don't see this movie. It's very bad. It's very dumb. But now you know about it. And I would probably say... One of the worst John Carpenter movies I've ever seen. Although I do hear that his movie Vampires, which came out, I think, in the late 90s. I would have to look that up. People did not like that movie either. So maybe I'll watch that sometime. But that's that for me. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right. So this week I have a very special selection. 
I like specials. So, gentle listener, shortly after this episode airs, Max and I will be celebrating our first wedding anniversary. That's true. Which, being married to me is a horror story in and of itself. (laughs) Mostly when I'm hungry. But... Since we will be looking back so fondly at our own wedding, I thought that I would do The Venue, a wedding novel by T.J. Payne. Is this about the horrors of wedding planning? Because that was horrific. That was like a year of horror. It was more. I just fielded a lot of the texts from your mother. Oh, boy. If anybody out there is planning on getting married, I will say we got everybody gave us the same advice. Don't have a big wedding. Don't have a small wedding. Go on a lobe, spend the money on a honeymoon. And we were like, no. I was like, I kind of want like to do something. Like, it's not going to be that bad. It was 100% that bad. It was terrible. So I'm going to tell everybody, don't be me. Don't have a wedding. Just a lobe. And then spend the money on a honeymoon. For the record, the day itself was lovely. That said, well, okay. For the record, the ceremony itself was lovely. I it this yeah I mean it was fine like the ceremony was good the reception was actually really nice but the I don't know just the planning it and everything leading up to it just took so much like I guess if I could have literally like stepped away and not had anything to do with it and just shown up and then be like we planned this party for you I might have enjoyed it more I mean I enjoyed it I don't it's hard to say it was just so much and it was like every little thing somebody had to like somebody had to like bother you with that's that was the annoyance to me and then ultimately they didn't even spell our names correctly actually they just completely got my name wrong on our wedding menu so that was fun too we have good wedding stories oh yeah like your mother being like when you think about it it's really my wedding except i don't think she said it like that i think she yelled it in an angry voice (laughs) because she was not getting her way the day of the wedding and then I promptly had to be removed from the room. Oh. Memories. But. Anyway. Anyways. It was published in April of last year. So at like the height of the emergence of coronavirus. Hmm. And I'm actually going to try my best to avoid spoilers in this one. Because it is so new. And because the author has this whole like social media marketing thing going on right now which fun fact is actually how i found it it showed up as an ad on my facebook feed because i look up horror novels all the time so it was like hey read this one the only ads i ever get ever are for those like gay fantasy romances with shirtless people because i listened to that one audiobook about a gay mage who has sex with a werewolf and now it's like my entire fucking feed is like that All of my ads are horror novels and knitting. (laughs) God, I wish. Which is a lovely combination. Anyway, the cover is super simple, but it's pretty striking. I am a big fan of, like, black and white with a splash of red, which is why, although the books themselves are pretty much garbage, I do actually like all of the Twilight novel covers because they're all in that color palette of like black and white and red uh it is a chandelier over a black and white checked dance floor that is splattered with blood it's pretty simple black white and red all over once again 
Kind of like with The Summer I Died, I wasn't able to find any information about who does the cover art, and I'm starting to wonder if that's like an ebook thing, because modern books usually have it just printed on the back cover. But anyway, from the cover alone, it's pretty obvious what we're getting from this book, and I was excited to read it. Quick look at the blurb. You're invited to Caleb Hunt's wedding. Sure, you haven't spoken since you two had a falling out in high school, but Caleb has gotten over that. He's a forgiving person. It was all a misunderstanding. He credits you with turning him into the man he is today, and he wants to repay you and everyone else from his life with an invitation to his destination wedding, an all-expense-paid trip to a luxurious resort high up in the Alps, secluded and private. Please RSVP. It's sure to be a killer party. Okay, who would ever accept that invitation? Well, that's not the worst invitation. That actually is really a great lead-in. Is the blurb heavy-handed? Yes. Is the author going for subtlety? Absolutely not. Is it still amazing? 100%. It opens with several drafts of a wedding invitation to Amy, who is our main character, from Caleb. They vary in levels of creepy, but then there's also one where he's like, you're a fucking whore. I'm going to rip out your heart and I'm going to masturbate with it. I assume he does not send that one. No, he clearly did not. Also, like, dude, just get a flesh jack. Maybe maybe he's trying to be romantic. I could, um, I could see some people. Like, never mind. Cut. <laughs> Cut Continue. that. <laughs> So let's jump right in. Like I said, I'm going to avoid spoilers as much as possible. So it's basically going to be like broad strokes and then some very specific details that I just really thoroughly enjoyed. So after our kind of sequence of creepy wedding invitations, we get a scene of Caleb and his fiance Lilith touring the venue. And it basically lets us know exactly what's going to happen which is that it is a place for extremely rich people to bring groups of other people to kill under the guise of an occasion, such as a wedding or a family reunion. It's like a deadliest game situation. Most dangerous game? Yeah, sure. Wait, what are you referencing? I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. The short story? Yeah, but it's had like a billion iterations. Where people hunt people. Yeah, but the original one is the most dangerous game. I actually really like that story, and I had to write a sequel as an assignment for class. And then I read a sequel online, um, actually just like a week or two ago, where it ends with the two people falling in love. It was weird. Hmm. Anyway, I read weird shit on the internet. The book is not subtle as it goes along, and I really don't think it's meant to be. Uh, if the author did mean for it to be subtle, I'm, I'm sorry, but you weren't. It's overly menacing and it's so much fun. The story mainly surrounds Amy, her ex-girlfriend Mariko, and Amy's parents. And despite being her ex, Mariko is still attending the wedding as Amy's plus one because they broke up on good terms and it's an all-expenses-pay trip to Europe. Some people are like that. So... While we are seeing them get ready to go, we are also seeing snippets of Caleb and Lilith getting ready for the wedding, which is a process that includes weightlifting, weapons training, and shooting each other up with steroids. (laughs) The foreshadowing is really real here. Sure. 
So once the action really starts, the big plan is revealed. Essentially, everyone is trapped at the venue. And if you kill someone, you are whisked away by the staff and you're given a drug that makes you forget the past 48 hours. And if you don't kill someone, you die at midnight. Wait, so the guests are supposed to kill each other too? Yes. Oh, okay. And they explain these rules to people? Yes, they do explain it. I'm trying, like I said, this is really the first time that I've tried not to give away any plot points. Like any major plot points. Sure. So I'm leaving some loopholes. But essentially, like, the guests are supposed to kill each other. And the happy couple are just supposed to watch. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Here's where I have in my notes. The hosts get the satisfaction of watching the people that they hated be manipulated into acting like animals. And the attendees live the rest of their lives with the weird feeling that something horrible has happened to them. There's a lot of monologues from Caleb and Lilith about... Like, I enjoy knowing that for the rest of your life, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you'll have this weird feeling that you've done something horrible, even though the drug makes you forget the last 48 hours. So do they go into like why they've selected the people? Yes, but I don't want to give it away because it's really fun. It's like super over the top. Like there's sorority sisters who are really bitchy to Lilith and there are like teachers who are mean to Caleb. I feel like being mean to somebody, though, is not like, I don't know. That's like, this bitch cut in line at Starbucks. I'm fucking putting her on my list. Caleb is super toxic. It's pretty easy to tell, even from just the drafts of the invitations, so I'm not giving away a super spoiler here, that Caleb was in love with Amy. Yeah, I mean, I think you can kind of, just from the blurb, I'd assume that it was like an ex-girlfriend and it didn't work out or something. yeah. He actually didn't know she was gay. And there's a really amusing scene where she tells him. Because he's like, you rejected me. Da, 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 da. You rejected me because you wanted to date someone more popular. Da, 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 da. And she's like, no, I rejected you because I like the puss. And what do you even say to that? His response was basically just like, oh, oops. <laughs> My bad. Yeah, I mean, what do you say to that? It's like, okay. Too late. Still got to kill you. This has all been a big misunderstanding. Unfortunately, you're already here. So I've already paid for the murders. I've already laid a deposit down. So could you just like kill someone so you don't die so I don't feel bad? (laughs) Wow. This is really awkward. But you are going to have to kill somebody because I've already paid for all of this. Might I recommend someone's grandmother? So are they the only ones at this place? Oh, no, you said they're staff. God, can you imagine being a staff at a place like that? It's, you see little snippets of the staff. It's all, like, it's basically staffed by sociopaths. There's literally, like, a staff lounge where people, like, they sit and watch the action. I mean, I could do that job. I bet you they get paid a lot of money. It's, to be honest with you, it's really interesting. As long as you don't walk into it expecting it to be this, like, super serious, super creepy Like, if you read it for the tongue-in-cheek horror that it is, it's so well done. It's like when I, I feel like, to be honest, like, I bartended for that person, I'm not going to say private, wealthy person's Super Bowl party when the Saints won. And, I mean, this could not be that much worse. 
I haven't heard this story, but I feel like there are details that you can't give away. So after we're done recording, (laughs) I want to hear all about it. I mean, the only thing I'll say about it is I made a ton of money that night, like hand over fist because rich people getting drunk while winning the Super Bowl, super happy. And that night went on forever. And I ended up having to walk home from the quarter because traffic was so bad. I could not get my car out of the lot. Jesus. Yeah. Gross. Sports ball. Sports goes sports. Anyway. I'm not going to tell you who dies because I had so much fun reading this book that I really just want everyone to read it. Like, even if scary stuff scares you, this is far more of like the over the top tongue in cheek kind of horror. Like, it's not going to scare you. It's just straight up entertaining. And I loved it. It's kind of like, oh, my God, I don't remember that movie title. The movie that came out where it's like they're getting married and it's like the game. Knives Out. But not Knives Out. Oh. It's one where they play this like game of hide and seek. I thought that was Knives Out. No, that's not Knives Out. You're right. Knives Out, somebody dies and there's like an inheritance or something, I think. Yes, you're right. This one, it's one with, I want to say it's like, I might have to cut this. It's like either Margot Robbie or somebody who looks just like Margot Robbie. It's the woman who looks exactly (laughs) like Margot Robbie. Yeah, it's upsetting. Anyways, so it's like, it kind of reminds me a little bit of that where like they're getting married. So then they invite her to play this game of hide and seek where like she has to survive in order to be part of the family. Yes, it's very similar. I I guess I haven't seen that movie, but I do even mention in my notes, like I kind of want to watch it now because I didn't realize that over the top wedding horror is a very niche genre that I enjoy. Right. And I met, I have not seen it either. I I would definitely watch it, but my guess is I think the vibe of that is kind of borderline comedic horror in sort of how absurd it is. And that's sort of the vibe I'm getting from here. And you talk about the plot of this. It's so good. So some of the like specific details that I enjoyed, there is one scene that really stood out to me when Amy and her family, I'm just including Mariko in that moniker because it's easier. They are hiding in the gym that's at the resort because remember it's staged as this destination wedding. So Mm -hmm. it's this like super big resort. And then when the wedding happens, shit hits the fan. So they're hiding in the gym And what gets me the most about the scene is that they've decided to use gym equipment to defend themselves. And I shit you not, they use a squat bar as a quarter staff. There's no way. That's exactly what I thought. So first of all, I love the imagery of it. I think it's great. And it fits with like the borderline camp that we're going for here. But gentle listener, if you are not a little gym rat, as I tend to be, a squat bar is 45 pounds. And I looked it up because I'm a librarian. A quarter staff is four pounds. And Amy's mother wields the squat bar. And I'm pretty sure she couldn't do that in real life. No. Honestly, what it makes me really want to do is ask the owner of my gym, who, as you know, Max, is super jacked, if he would be able to swing a squat bar with any sort of effectiveness, just because I'm curious but he would probably look at me weird. <laughs> and even though he's super sweet, it's kind of like that time that I asked you to measure your foot as research for a book that I'm doing in a future episode, except you're used to the fact that I'm odd. And you asked me over Messenger, I believe, not in person. You were like, hey, I need you to measure your foot. Like, I just got a message out of the blue like that. I like to think that you're used to that. <laughs> 
Yeah, you cannot swing a squat bar. Those things are heavy. Yeah. Anyway, I bring all of this up not to shade the author for inaccuracy, but honestly is kind of like praise because inaccuracies usually annoy me super deeply, as you can tell by my many outbursts while (laughs) you were talking about your movie. But this book was so much fun that I didn't give a shit. They could have been flinging around 150 pound weights like it was nothing. And I'd still be like, yes, okay. Like, hmm, I'll eat what you're serving. That's fine. There's also just a lot of wedding themed fun. Like there's a dance contest where the winner survives. And there's the same with a bouquet toss. There is a poisoned wedding cake with cyanide frosting that's put out for the people to eat if they just can't bring themselves to kill anyone else and they want it all to be over. Hmm. If there, if there's just an attention to detail with the kind of underlying thread of humor that I thought was so brilliant. It's like every single aspect of this wedding was tied into being this over the top horror. Hmm. And I, I just, I loved it. And I'm not really sure I have much else to say because I don't want to give away plot, but I do want to mention one thing that for some odd reason was like literally my favorite part of the entire book. The bartender in the ballroom where the reception is like bulletproof glass drops down in front of him when the shit hits the fan. Mm -hmm. But anyone can still ask him for stuff. Like he has weapons. You can request weapons. Obviously you can request booze, but you can also request drugs. And I don't know why I thought that was so funny, but Caleb was like, I want some cocaine. And the bartender was like, okay, would you like powder, free base, or crack? And I don't know why, but for some odd reason, I just thought that was hilarious. I mean, everyone likes options. It was a cute detail. It was really cute. All in all, as I'm sure you can guess, I'm going to give this five out of five slices of cyanide cake. I loved it. It was bloody. It was campy. And it was an absurd delight that makes our wedding drama look like nothing. I loved it so much that I've actually already added this author's other books to my list of like potential books to read for future episodes because I was so impressed with this one. I was like, yay, I'll read his other stuff. It was a lot of fun. At least one of us did something good. I liked it. Go read it. It's not that expensive to buy the ebook and it was just so much fun. Good. It sounds great. So I feel like this actually might be one of the most interesting times where I say, if you were in the venue, would you be killed? So here's where I want to be like, I'm so tough. I'm from the panhandle, motherfucker. But in all reality, I'm 5'7", and I am quite small. And I would probably go down pretty quick in a battle royale. So no, I don't think I would survive. I think I would probably be a pretty early on target. Also, I'm gay. And the gays always die fast in horror movies. Second, in fact. Usually second, right after the black person. Which I don't, to be honest, I don't think we actually ever explained the name of this podcast. We didn't. And I had no idea when you came up with it. I just thought it sounded really cool. Yeah, because apparently, so I had always heard growing up that in horror movies, the stereotype is that the black person dies first and the gay person dies second. So when we were trying to come up with a name, I was like, let's do second to die. 
And you're like, okay, that sounds great. And then like two weeks later, I was like, isn't it so witty? And you're like, I don't know why it's witty, but sure. (laughs) I just thought it sounded cool. What can you do? Anyway. Would you die in the mist? The The fog. fog. The mist. The fog. The mist of Stephen King. Oh. Much better than the fog. Okay. Sorry. My bad, Stephen. I didn't mean to badmouth (laughs) you. Would you die in the fog? The garbage version. No. I mean, for starters, they only kill six people. Second, it seems kind of like they really do just knock on doors and they kill the people that answer the door. And I don't think I would do that. As we covered, you are the one who answers the door in this family, though. That's true. I might get killed for that. But the odds, I mean, it's a whole town and they're only looking for six people. We also have glass in our front door. You'd be able to see that it was zombie sailors and we'd be like, "Mm, better not. True. Yeah, all the I mean, all the doors that they knock on in the movie are solid. That is also why we are going to be immune to the black eyed kids. Yes. We'd see creepy children with black eyes on our front porch from our fucking kitchen. And we'd be like, mm, no, no, thank you. I would probably, well, I did open the door for that magazine selling girl once and I let her give her whole spiel before I turned her down. So I probably would open the door. But as soon as there were kids talking about like coming inside, I'd be like, hell to the no. That's how they get you. Don't let kids with completely black eyes into your house. Also, look up the Black Eyed Kids. It's literally my favorite urban legend. Anyway, we have rambled a lot and gone on a lot of tangents in this episode. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us. Questions, comments, concerns, and suggestions of books and movies and, and whatever to secondtodiepod at gmail.com. Email us and let us know if you also heard the whole the gay person dies second. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die. <laughs>